The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4, The Medieval World. Episode 29, Medieval Communication. To understand medieval communication, it needs to be understood how communication evolved during the ancient period. Communication and travel are linked. In order to communicate over distances, one has to be prepared to travel, at least certainly before the age of technology. Why do people travel in general? Quite simply and from a practical perspective, it is to acquire resources. The alternative reason is for experience. So in the modern world, it may be to experience a different location. But that could be for a number of spiritual reasons, including religious pilgrimages. We even find in the writings of Homer, the first millennium BCE, Greek writer, that this notion of travel being good for the human soul is recognised. Humans naturally want to travel in any case. It is our fundamental nature to explore. We are a nomadic animal, travelling from place to place and looking for opportunities to hunt for prey and to discover vegetation. The prehistoric human lifestyle resembled that of many other animals. Human beings' primary motive was to search for food, and when food was scarce, humans would migrate. They would migrate until they colonised the world. Such was their versatility when it came to survival in unnatural conditions. It is highly likely back then that humans had an advanced manner of communication face-to-face with a combination of vocal sounds and body gestures, coupled with an advanced cognitive ability that could understand and convey abstract thoughts, such as discussing the future, which may be important for devising a plan for ambushing a herd of animals. As human populations grew, resources became more scarce, and so the more successful humans were able to devise ways to farm both animals and plants, and the nurturing of such farms required humans to build settlements adjacent to these farms, and this instigated the emergence of villages and towns. Those villages and towns that were able to produce an agricultural surplus would be able to negotiate with neighbouring villages and towns to use that surplus in order to gain resources such as wood or metal. And this is an example of the earliest forms of trade. In order to make good trade deals, you would be sensible to send your best negotiators. 
and so a class of merchants would emerge. These merchants would need to be able to transport goods, but also transport valuable information. So even then, there was a price on information, as societies that knew who to send their traders to would have the edge over those who didn't. If a society could not acquire their desired resources through friendly trade, then they may believe that they could acquire it by aggressive means. So now the ability to transport weapons was also a requirement. Those societies that mastered the ability to construct wheeled wagons would be able to transport goods and weapons effectively. Skilled seafarers realised that the ability to transport from a greater variety of destinations at greater speed would improve trade opportunities and so expert seafarers from cultures such as the Minoans from the Mediterranean island of Crete would be able to exploit the opportunity to become a wealthy middleman to the emerging societies of the ancient world. In Egypt, the River Nile provided the quickest method of transportation, like a highway through the middle of the country. Due to the Egyptian population all living in close proximity to the river, the pharaohs were able to spread information quickly throughout their entire kingdom, as well as making personal appearances with relative ease. The introduction of the horse from the Eurasian steppe to the quickly advancing societies of the ancient world enabled kingdoms to turn transport wagons into chariots, which would speed up the transport of information where rivers were not sufficient. Both naval vessels and chariots would play an important role in ancient warfare too. Transport and trade by water was always quite straightforward. The biggest enemy would have been the sea itself with its strong currents and unpredictable nature in stormy conditions. But so vast was the expanse of water that nobody ever really encountered any hostility until traders attempted to navigate through small waterways such as the Hellespont. So if the Persians held the Hellespont, they may attempt to attack Greek vessels attempting to reach the Black Sea from the Mediterranean Sea. One of the earliest great Persian rulers was a king called Darius I, and Darius would recognise the potential threat of the Greeks to his western frontier and understand the importance of being able to move within his own territory safely and at speed. Persia did not have the luxury of the seas and rivers to connect it to its Mediterranean coasts, so Darius set about building a road network. Achaemenid Persia was unparalleled in its power at the turn of the 5th century BCE. The territory was vast and the governance of the empire was divided up into satrapies and governed by a local satrap. Often the issue with large empires is that there are various ethnicities within it 
that do not necessarily appreciate having their traditions and culture replaced and are sensitive to whether they feel that they can take back self-governance if they feel that they are not being fairly represented or treated. The imperial rulers may choose to either show respect to the feeling of that ethnic group or to quite simply bully that ethnic group into submission. In order to do that, the emperor must be able to relay messages quickly to his satraps to maintain control of the empire. And the only way to do that was to have a highly convenient transport route network. Egypt was blessed by nature with the River Nile. Darius had to create his own version of the River Nile across the land and it wasn't necessarily a construction so much as a cleared pathway which we call the Royal Road. The Royal Road would have had other roads branching off from it but essentially it was ensured that there was a safe haven every day's travel along the route and it would take an efficient courier only a week to travel from the central Persian lands of Mesopotamia to the Mediterranean coast. This meant that information travelled through the empire fast, giving the Persians an ability to react in a well-organised manner to address any turn of events such as a rebellion. Tradesmen and military troops were able to make the most of the royal road too, to enhance their travel plans. In the ancient world, safe passage for travellers could not necessarily be taken for granted. Tradesmen carrying goods would have had to have been very adept at fending off local bandits who would now know to expect goods to be travelling along the royal road. If an emperor required the transport of important resource over a long distance to take place smoothly, he may preempt this journey by sending a message to his local satraps to ensure that the caravan was protected while within his satrapy. Those individuals entrusted with the task of accompanying the caravan of goods would have carried a letter from the emperor requesting safe passage for his envoy, and this would have represented the first kind of passport. A similar kind of system was developing in Greece in a land of different city-states with changing allegiances. Border guards held clay tablets inscribed with their names in order to avoid any unnecessary hostilities with neighbouring territories. Historians such as the Greek-speaking Herodotus would have undoubtedly have travelled during his lifetime in order to construct such a highly respected cultural analysis of the known world. Some of his travels would have been approved and therefore it was likely that he himself would have needed to have carried some form of passport to represent him as a trusted individual. Safe Passage Some of the logistical issues with safe travel in the ancient world which would have undoubtedly remained during the medieval period of history. In order to guarantee safe passage from one nation to another, the nation would need to ensure that the route was physically navigable, and further to that, 
the nation would have had to have made the appropriate diplomatic negotiations to ensure that the journey would be a successful one. As trade networks became more complicated and knowledge of other peoples became more extensive, there became a necessity for expert cartographers to represent that information well. Cartography is essentially the creation of maps. We could spend a lot of time talking about the emergence of cartographers in the classical world, but the honest reality is that humans have been creating maps dating deep into prehistory even if it's just a map of the local area that depicts a river and a forest and a herd of animals to aid with hunting, and even if it's inscribed onto a stone or painted onto a cave wall. Classical world cartography tends to be more eye-catching for two reasons. Firstly, because it extends beyond the local area and often names the different tribes so it can give us an indication as to who was around and where they belonged at any given time. Secondly, we like to compare the lands and seas to those printed in our modern and more accurate maps to see how amazingly close the ancient cartographers were to the true shapes of the countries without the benefit of modern science. For the people of their time though, the earliest maps represented an ability to plan a journey and avoid misfortune. So you wouldn't send your best envoy on a mission to speak to another kingdom through a hostile territory that was clearly depicted on a map that had been created using the expert knowledge of a previous traveller. Even if it made the journey longer, it may have been more important that the journey could guarantee its completion. So the cartographers of the ancient Greeks would have been hugely important in a competitive environment reliant on the ability to explore and colonise, and what's more, a need to identify colonies with which to develop essential trade relationships with. Cartography and exploration would evolve together and bring the world closer together as people discovered each other and new diplomatic and trade relationships were forged. One of the most notable being the expansion of the Silk Road as explorers such as Jiang Chen of Han China were able to open a communicative route from China to the Greco-Asian societies of Central Asia. This would initially serve to strengthen the societies directly associated with the Silk Road. The natural enemies of the Romans who were at the western end of the Silk Road were the Persians. And the Persians would naturally be reluctant to make communication between the Romans and the Chinese too easy. So the Romans would invest in the improvements of their own communications networks by both land and sea. One of the more well-known developments of the Romans was to emulate the Persians and create a road network. And so good was their road network that many of the routes still exist as modern roads today. This would enable the Romans to move quickly within their own vast territory, which would enhance trade, diplomacy, taxation and military manoeuvres. 
The Romans were so adept at construction that not only would they be able to create cements that would build the strongest buildings, but they would be able to lay down the most effective roads that would be durable over time with a considered system of layering and drainage. The straightness of the roads meant that potential hijacking of travelling parties would be limited due to the good level of visibility around the road for anyone travelling along it. While this was going on, geographers like Strabo were creating literature that would house the knowledge of the known world like never before. The Romans would gather the seafaring expertise of their conquered enemies to overcome the hostilities of the Persians and attempt to find ways to bypass the land routes of the Silk Road. Mapping was now more important than ever, with the requirement to understand the extensive and complex road networks of the Roman Empire, and to be able to understand the sea routes in the same way. And we can see this through the classical world sea maps, such as the Periplus of the Erythrian Sea. Into the medieval era. So, we have spent a large amount of time attempting to understand the global transport network that led to the medieval era and how that facilitated communication. Despite all of the work of those people of the ancient world to gather and record their knowledge in a bid to help their fellow man understand the world that they lived in, the world was vast and ever changing and so every long-distance journey was fraught with uncertainty. Overland, you were not to know if you would be entering hostile territory, and over sea, entering hostile conditions. Likewise, as much as a travelling party might fear hostile territories, the travelling party could also specialise in terrorising the territory that they were travelling through. No two journeys were surely the same. National leaders of well-established nations of people would attempt to use religion to expand their influence, and so we see journeys of spiritual discovery and pilgrimage. Religious leaders were viewed upon as the fountains of knowledge and were arguably disproportionately trusted for advice and guidance as they would represent the emotional gods of the Western pagan beliefs and the Abrahamic faiths, or the natural equilibrium of the Eastern faiths in life on earth. The religious leaders were not just blindly followed for debatable reward though. These were the people who educated the population, whether they be the madrasas of the Islamic world the monasteries of the Christian world or the temples of the Buddhist world. Scholars would travel great distances in a similar manner to those scholars travelling to the academies of the classical world. There would be a notion of sacredness that may lead to some journeys of pilgrimage and enlightenment being untouchable in the eyes of many. Some journeys had absolutely no regard for religious sanctity whatsoever. 
the Vikings were not without spiritual belief, but certainly before their ultimate conversion would see the sacred relics of Christianity as financially valuable booty, and their attitude to travel was one of self-belief in their own ability to take on those who they came across. There was a real element of fearlessness about Viking journeys of exploration that may have been embellished somewhat by romantic tales that have been created about them in the centuries that followed. Undoubtedly, not all Viking journeys were successful against the militarily established nations of medieval Europe. Any quashing of a Viking raiding party in Central Europe would have paled into insignificance compared to a glorious victory of one established medieval European nation over another. So we are left fantasising more about the swashbuckling nature of Viking excursions. Viking journeys would have met with their own share of danger. So let's get to the point of this episode and that is to honour the request of the History of the World podcast Illuminati member Conrad Barsky, a medical software developer from California, who wanted to understand more about the nature of medieval travel and communication with respect to particular questions. One of which was the discussion of how kings sent messages to each other. And with no first-hand knowledge in my possession, we can reach some conclusions based on the study of this episode. Monarchs of established medieval kingdoms would have to utilise their best travelling parties to relay messages to other kings. They would have had navigators and personal guards among their travelling party, but not weighed down by having too many people in their party so that they could travel at speed along well-established and well-known routes where possible. They would have travelled with official documentation, which would have appealed for safe passage through foreign territories, much like a modern passport. The documents may have been validated with the official seal of the king. Envoys would have utilised routes well-known and travelled by tradespeople, who would need to utilise these routes on a regular basis. Therefore, the travel of envoys would have been reasonably efficient, as the most well-utilised trade routes would have had service stations where refreshments and resting facilities with stables for horses would have been readily available. Along the Silk Road, such places are referred to as caravanserais, and were commonplace throughout the Middle East and the lands of the Eastern Mediterranean. Those on religious pilgrimage would have made their journeys along these routes, utilising the service stations along the way. A similar method of message delivery would have been used for religious documents such as papal bulls that would have decreed certain religious laws throughout the lands of the Catholic Church. Early medieval documents would have preferred to have been written on papyrus as it was hard-wearing and easy to transport. The lack of ease with which the papacy in Rome was able to communicate with the monasteries of Ireland would lead to the evolution of an insular Celtic Christian church in Ireland that would take a slightly different path to its own as a consequence 
and it wasn't until the Christianisation of the Anglo-Saxons that the Roman Catholics would encounter the insular Celtic Christian church from Ireland, attempting to Christianise the Anglo-Saxons from the West and the North. And it wasn't until the meeting of the two churches and the resolution of their differences at the Synod of Whitby in the 7th century that papal messages could reach the remoter regions of the British Isles with relative ease. When it came to the more secular messages that a king may give to his people about governance, law and taxation, then that would often be relayed to the local governors to distribute and enforce. Medieval kings would have understood the value of having a military base distributed evenly around his kingdom to prevent the modern equivalent of barbarian raids on his lands, such as those made by the Vikings, for example. This meant establishing a network of bases, such as the burrs established by King Alfred the Great of Wessex. These burrs would become busy centres of commerce, agriculture and local governance. They would often be fortified for protection and act as a military base. In any kingdom where a system of taxation was set up, we could expect to find that everyone who lived within the kingdom would be told by the representatives of the local governor exactly who the king was and exactly what their obligations were to him. After the Norman invasion of England, a foreign rule would come to the Anglo-Saxons. The Normans would become the elite ruling class of the country and would build castles to govern the population from. The castles would be very exclusive and the populations would still know who was ruling them, but this time the rule would have been obeyed more through fear than duty than it had been before. It was not impossible for somebody to travel alone, but certainly not advisable. If a message needed to be taken from one local governor to another in haste due to the potential actions of a dangerous and powerful warlord on their fringes, then the governor may choose to pay a horseman handsomely for his efficient carriage of the message. That horseman may also deem it less dangerous to travel alone at high speed, knowing that it would take a considerable effort to catch him and stop him. We can only imagine that certain individuals had a flair for getting by while travelling, so this might be a medieval knight who had a canny knack for negotiating his way through kingdoms using charm and guile, or this could be the devoted traveller with an insatiable thirst for knowledge. And we see individuals in the late medieval period who devoted years of their lives to travelling and ultimately documenting their travels. One of the most considerable was a man popularly called Ibn Battuta, who came of age after the death of Marco Polo and whose travels surpassed those of the amazing travels of Marco Polo himself. Marco Polo was a Venetian merchant who was born into a family of Silk Road merchants. This was the foundation of a knowledge of travelling through lands that could be dangerous if traversed without due care and attention. It would be sensible to avoid lands in the midst of warfare, as it would be sensible to avoid lands that were renowned for banditry. 
it is completely comparable to modern life where people avoid walking along certain pathways or neighbourhoods at certain times of day within their hometown or village because it is known to be risky. Marco Polo is famous for his 24-year journey with his father and his uncle from Europe to Yen, China, which was under the rule of the Mongols. The details of the journey were documented by a scribe whom Marco Polo had a chance meeting with, which raises the question of how many other European merchants were having similar adventures that have never been documented. Ibn Battuta was a Berber from the lands of the modern country of Morocco and he, like Marco Polo, went on a 24-year journey too, which has helped him to become popularly referred to as the Islamic Marco Polo. However, Ibn Battuta is considerable and even makes Marco Polo's travels look completely inferior. Ibn Battuta's travels started as a conventional hajj to the Islamic holy city of Mecca, but turned into considerably more. After crossing North Africa to the Middle East and reaching Mecca, he decided to head to the thriving city of Baghdad and receive an education in legal affairs. This way, he could be welcomed as a skilled man in many Islamic cities. So he continued to travel along the east coast of Africa to Zanzibar before turning back north and through the Middle East to Byzantine Constantinople. He would then travel eastwards across the steppe before turning south into India and coming into the service of the Sultan of Delhi. After escaping this service, he would take to the seas and travel via Indochina to China itself before returning all the way home to the Maghreb. When he arrived home after 24 years, he travelled to the Islamic Emirate of Granada in the modern country of Spain to help defend the emirate from a probable invasion by the Castilians, after which he would cross back to Africa and travel by camel along the Trans-Sahara salt caravan route to the West African Empire of Mali, before he would return home and settle to write his travelogue, popularly called the Rihla. The Yueng dynasty of China, instigated by the Mongols, encountered by Marco Polo, was replaced by the Ming dynasty and it was during the years of the Ming that a Chinese traveller would make a considerable journey after he was brought into the service of the Chinese emperor as a eunuch during the 15th century. He would be named Zheng He, and he would be sent on treasure voyages that would take him all the way from China to East Africa. He would travel around Indochina via the Malay archipelago onto India and then the Arabian Peninsula on his way there. He would return with treasures including exotic animals for the emperor. These are the journeys that we know about, so imagine the ones that we have little or no knowledge of. These considerable travels would be the precursor to the Great Age of Exploration, which would see many other monarchs send their greatest travellers, sailors and explorers on great voyages of discovery 
and treasure that would shape the formation of the Imperial Age and the Age of Industry, which of course will be explored at length in a future volume of the History of the World podcast. That concludes this episode of the History of the World podcast about medieval communication, commissioned by the History of the World podcast Illuminati member, Conrad Barsky. In other business, this week's History of the World podcast Ancient World Cup result saw Anglo-Saxons advance at the expense of the Teotihuacanos by 58% to 42%. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode. Until next time, be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at History of the World Podcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. See you next time. <laughs>